what is the role of the NIH in creating new drugs? As the drug pricing debate becomes increasingly adversarial between the U.S. Congress, the biopharma industry, and consumers, there is a common narrative that it is the NIH-based discoveries, not the biopharma industry, that is responsible for all U.S. innovation. Is this true? To sort through these increasingly rancorous narratives, Vital Transformation has recently published an analysis of over 8,000 NIH-funded patents invented from over 23,000 NIH grants to determine how much an NIH-funded discovery actually impacts the creation of new drugs that are approved by the FDA to treat patients. I'm Dwayne Schultes, the CEO of Vital Transformation, and today I'm joined by two of my colleagues in our second Grumpy Old Men broadcast, and they are Dr. Joe Hamming, VT's U.S. Business Director and a card-carrying neuroscientist. Hello, Joe. Hello, Dwayne, and hello, Harry. Great to be here today. And as Joe has introduced, Dr. Harry Bowen, VT's consulting economist and a professional purveyor of common sense. Hello, Harry. How are you doing? You're recovering from COVID, thus why you're not here. Hello. 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 Harry, we just published a study in Therapeutic Innovation and Regulatory Science just came out this week. We sent out a press release. The title of the study is The Relative Contributions of NIH and Private Sector Funding to the Approval of New Biopharmaceuticals. That's a highfalutin way to say, is it the NIH or is it private sector funding that is really driving the approval bus? Uh, we looked at over 23,000 grants and their impact on the probability of new drug approvals. Can you give us sort of the top line and the key findings of the study. NIH, or otherwise called public funding, uh, amounted to $670 million for those uh, total drugs. But the private sector had invested 66 times that amount, 44.3 roughly billion. And then in terms of the bottom line sort of question of, uh, you know, who contributes at best uh, public funding appears statistically to contribute nothing to FDA approval. Holding fixed the amount of money that the private sector would spend, that actually tended to reduce the likelihood of FDA approval. Why do you think that is, Harry? I think it has to do partly with the differences and in incentives that the government has with regard to how it spends its money private sector is going to be weighing costs and benefits in the decision of how much money to invest. The government doesn't necessarily look at the long-term uh, uh, financial outcome that may or may not come and tends to provide that foundational basic research but doesn't really have any uh, uh, anchor, I'll call it, to what might be the, the cost relative to the benefit that could derive from the spending. So I, I think that it's a really a question of incentives. I don't think that the government thinks about it certainly as a business proposition. They may tend to spend a lot of money on things that from a business standpoint would not be something that the private sector taking business decisions into account would have chosen to invest in. Joe, you've worked as a bench scientist. You've worked for small biotechs. You've been an assistant and aide to the governor of Rhode Island. You've spent several decades in global policy and big pharma. What does this result mean to you? Are you, I guess, first off, are you surprised at what we found? And secondly, why is there such a misunderstanding of the role, the relative role of the public and private sector? Where is this coming from? This is something that uh, we've been following for decades, isn't it, Dwayne and, and Harry? 
the idea that the NIH creates all really the important stuff uh, and the industry comes along on the back end and um, takes it over the goal line and markets the product for a, a great deal of profit is is one of those very difficult to dispel canards that has been, again, around for um, forever. It's really interesting that the conversations we had with various folks from the National Institutes of Health, both present uh, as well as past, people like uh, Chris Austin, formerly of NCATS, there's a very clear understanding on their part that the industry plays this crucial, crucial role in, in drug development. And that uh, at the same time, the government investments through the NIH and, and other organizations, both here in the United States and throughout the world, have a very important role, but it tends to be the earlier stage research, the identifying new genes and targets, the great deal of early stage research and development, the, the clinical development is really the purview of the biopharmaceutical industry. I think it's it's very clear. And again, it's clear to our friends and colleagues uh, who are in government. But again, this persists, this idea persists for one reason or another. And, and of course, it's what we're trying to do to, to dispel that and to dispel that with facts. And that was the whole idea behind this paper. It's really funny how we're sort of getting into a fact-free world around biopharma development. You know, Harry, you and I and Joe worked on, you know, we did a podcast around this, the, the Agihelm decision. You know, and we testified as a team in the U.S. Congress around this. And we went on the record and said, look, if you do this, if CMS makes this proposal and puts in this required extra evidence delay overriding an accelerated approval, this drug would be taken off the market and we would likely not see other drugs registered. This happened and people accused us of being chicken little in many ways, sort of saying, no, the, no, the industry doesn't need, you know, can do that. What's going on, Harry? I mean, you worked in government. Why are we getting so far away from reality here with some of these regulatory proposals and the, and the belief of how the economics of the sector actually work? This uh, continued march forward in that somehow all problems are solved by the government. And that's a kind of complete shift from 40, 80, 150 years ago. And so, you know, we're just seeing this permeating into a particular sector that we're interested in, in the biopharma sector. But I think it's typical of many of the activities in which the government has chosen to insert itself. I mean, when I teach economics courses, name me one thing that the government has ever really done that on a cost-benefit analysis standpoint, the benefit has exceeded the cost. Where have they been successful in choosing successful industries? This is something that's often talked about when we get into things like industrial policy. I, I don't know, maybe it's like gold prospecting. So that they discover a gold field and say, okay, Eureka, we have it, we found it. But then who's gonna go dig up all the gold? This is kind of the mistaken belief that just because you discover something means that it's also going to lead down the road into um, usable drugs and medicines and this type of thing.
I'm reminded of in my local area here of Charlotte, North Carolina, we have something called the NASCAR Museum. A large fraction of the funding for that NASCAR Museum was the taxpayers of Charlotte, North Carolina, and it lost money. And who's on the hook? Taxpayers. taxpayers. Of- I wanted to jump in uh, to add a little bit to what Harry said and, and about an additional point that he just made around the ecosystem. And it is indeed an ecosystem from basic research all the way through uh, phase three and 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 then and phase four, frankly, uh, as the industry follows up, you know, on, on drugs, make sure that they're safe, effective, uh, and they're actually doing what the drug developers uh, intended. As the Brits would say, what it says on the tin. What it says on the tin, the label. Yeah. It's this ecosystem that's really critically important. And one of our greatest worries is as you tinker with an ecosystem, you pull this part out or that part out or you or you hamstring one part of an ecosystem the whole thing can begin to unravel and and not work so well and i think that we want to as as a country as a, as scientists and 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 um, as followers of the healthcare industry we certainly don't want to do that. We want it to be as efficient in bringing products to market, as efficient as possible in, in expenditure of federal and, and private money in, in drug development. We want all of that to be working at a tip-top level without any question. So the other point I, I just wanted to make quickly to follow on with Harry, it said, the industry is set up to develop medicines. And, and let's face it, the government isn't. They make efforts, they make some small investments, but they are indeed very small and they don't, aren't targeted to bring medicines through a development pipeline. They participate, it's really critically important, um, there's no question, but the bulk of this work is done by industry and it's just the way it's been. I hope that we never lose sight of that. Well, it's funny because, you know, obviously I live in Belgium and we've been very involved in a lot of the discussions in Europe for many years before we opened the D.C. office. If you read the rhetoric, um, in particular around COVID-19 at the start of the pandemic, when Oxford, before Oxford had cut their deal with AstraZeneca on their vaccine, what was interesting is if you read the newspapers and some of the rhetoric, what they were saying was, we don't need to worry about this because this is an academic vaccine and we're going to get it basically for free from Oxford. I mean, this was what these people were saying and there was a real belief around that. And no sooner, six weeks, five weeks later, when Oxford started getting some peer review results in and some clinical trial results, lo and behold, they're cutting a deal with AstraZeneca because Oxford doesn't have the ability to do a billion doses of vaccine. And they were also listing on the NASDAQ with their company that they privatized. I mean, they were cashing in and they were having to scale up with the private sector. There's no way they were going to be able to do that. It's a perfect example, Dwayne. It's a, it's a beautiful example of, of the intention is great. Perhaps, uh, but the the reality when the rubber meets the road, putting out billions of doses yeah. of, of a product is not something that government is going to turn around and do overnight. It just can't. They cannot do it. And many people will remember on September 29th of 2020, we ran a webinar with Clemens Martin Hour from the Austrian Health Ministry, who was part of the negotiating team for the European Commission, and Michael Dalston, the chief medical officer of Pfizer, on September 29th, 
he announced, I just sort of asked off the cuff. So, Michael, how's it going with your phase three on your COVID vaccine? And he dropped the mic on us. He just completely unexpected. Well, Dwayne, we just finished our second dose of 30,000. We're about to register with the FDA. Boom. Two weeks later, I'm on a plane, a United Airlines flight coming here to D.C. to do some work on one of the HR3 projects we were working on. And that plane was loaded, belly full of vaccine coming out of the factories in Europe. They were already scaled up doing millions of doses out of the fabs in Belgium. It's incredible how quickly they were able to do that in academic setting. No way. Just no way. Harry, where's this disconnect coming from intellectually? You work in academia. You have a chaired position. What do you say in the, <laughs> what do you say in the coffee break room? You know, <laughs> faculty lounge. What, what, what are the discussions you have? I think that there are people that the forum in which a lot of this sort of scientific uh, debate would normally take place as it used to a number of years ago, we're kind of in a social media frenzy uh, type space here. Something gets pushed out very quickly. It gets, you know, great press for whatever because it's a particular headline, but that's yesterday's news to the people providing that information and nobody bothers to follow up. Nobody, no, nobody bothers to ask, you know, is this true? Did we do this? We do have, of course, ethics committees and others, and people do evaluate, and there are retractions and this kind of thing. But that never makes the news. No. I, I think about that professor, um, Dr. Ekaterina Cleary, who published a couple right. articles about NIH funding. There was one in particular during covid where she made a rather large claim in an uh, article in STAT that remdesivir, Gilead's drug, had received $6.5 billion in public funding. And remdesivir obviously was an antiviral that was one of the first that was being used to treat COVID outside of the vaccination pathway. This generated a firestorm of controversy. This, this huge 6.5 billion number of people bloviating on television, screaming, yelling, pounding gavels everywhere. Just chaos erupted. And it got to the point where the U.S. Congress enlisted the General Accounting Office, the GAO, to do an audit. And what's interesting, if you actually read the report that came out, the GAO said, uh, we can find no intellectual property that was generated by the government as part of this partnership. So we went from $6.5 billion to an audit of zero. Now, how many people know about that GAO audit and that report, Joe? Very few. <laughs> exactly. Very, very that? few, unless they uh, they look at our slide deck. Uh, <laughs> well, they but, don't want but, to know. Uh, but they don't Man, want to. Many don't want to know, and they won't follow it up. It's 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 red meat when you throw six point five billion out there. It's so unfair to to Gilead. So unfair to the innovative process. So unfair to you know the entire industry to to put that kind of a number out there it's irresponsible it's unethical there is no way she could absolutely come up with that kind of a number other than pulling it out of thin air there is nothing behind it and again no accountability it seems harry it's somewhat egregious and but again i mean this is uh, this is part of the fact that things have become just part of a news cycle 
rather than sort of more internal. Sometimes that's always taken as a criticism, right? That uh, we academics are only talking to ourselves and we live in ivory towers. I don't think they can be ivory anymore because and, that's illegal to and, import. <laughs> uh, so uh, we can't, we, we can't have, have, have that anymore. I think that we're really losing sight of the importance of, of the protection of intellectual property in this country. I remember back when the Soviet Union fell, especially for economists and others, there was this great idea, sort of this grand experiment now. We were suddenly going to go from a, uh, you know, a dictatorship communist system to one that's a market-based, price-based system, everything that generally those in the West would be really happy to do. And then they found out there were all kinds of problems that arose, right? It wasn't a smooth transition. The oligarchs came in, there was all this. What ultimately that concluded, I believe, that was missing was, was an effective system of the protection of property rights. One, in defining property rights, so being able to write things down and who owns what and document it, and then being able to enforce it. This is something that has, ever since I've been around, uh, has always been, uh, you know, looked at from the standpoint of Latin America and Africa. Why are there, you know, difficulties in development? Why is this great disparity in wealth happening in these countries? And and every time people will come down to the idea of the absence of property rights. And, and so, you know, one of the things that is, is a hallmark of the West is the development of the protection of property rights, of, and in this case, intellectual property, right? Copyrights, patents, this whole system. So what we're seeing now with all of these various proposals and the government wanting to, you know, do things more and this kind of thing really threatens this whole foundation yeah. of property rights and, and intellectual property in particular and things. And I, I know I've mentioned this to, to you and Joe as we've gone along over the last uh, years here in these projects about you know, I don't understand this. We, we have these laws about granting um, exclusivity. Why do we do that? Well, it's well understood that if you don't have at least some expectation of being able to expropriate future gains that could come from your hard work and efforts and investment in uncertainty, you're not going to do it. Companies then operate under this system. They factor in what will be my likely sales and profitability in deciding to make these types of investments. And then as soon as the drug appears and it's a viable and now the company has a chance to recoup all of its expenditures and, uh, and such, suddenly the government says, no, 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 well, no, the, thank you very much. You know, thanks for finding that gold mine for us. Uh, and, uh, and now it's ours. That's just what we're dealing with now with the Inflation Reduction Act, which when we were working on it was the Build Back Better Act. We now have taken a patent that should have lasted 20, 25 years. And what we are now saying is, all right, you're in the market for nine years, and then you have a loss of exclusivity if you're a small molecule. Not a big molecule, only if you're a small molecule. So we're basically truncating uh, extra revenue from that patent for four or five years, but only in a certain class of drugs. And that's a very capricious and very bizarre decision. I don't know why. I guess it's because they wanted to run on it. That's the only thing I can think of. 
but now we're sort of bifurcating the pathway based on if you're a large or small molecule, just on a decision in a law. And no one knows how the heck this is going to play out. I guarantee VCs and investors are going to be looking long and hard at those small molecules now. Yeah. Well, we have a pretty good idea how it's going to play out, don't yeah. we? Yeah, well, $80 billion a year of lost revenue. That does not, that's not a small impact. That does not bode well. We've also talked so many times, uh, the three of us, about the examples that we're seeing throughout the world. The experiments have been run. The experiments are currently underway. These bad ideas emanate out of the European Union and, and other places, but they are easily exportable to the United States. And the, the trend that we see, the lack of investment, the lack of respect for intellectual property is looming large and is going to have a huge impact. Yeah, I completely agree, Joe. Harry, there's something else I'd like to talk about in the course of our study. You mentioned this earlier. I think it's, it's an important point. Because again, we didn't expect to find this. We based a lot of this research on a very early paper that was a student paper by a gentleman named Radu Muntanu at the University of California in San Diego in 2010. He did a big research project looking at the biotech sort of cluster around San Diego, a 10-year development. And what he found was overwhelmingly what we found, you know, the size of the IPO was a very good indicator of the size of the initial public offering, the stock market listing, the amount of capital that came in was a very good predictor if that company was going to be a success or not. In other words, the smart money is smart. The investors know what's going to work. And you could look at the investor behavior and predict an asset that would be successful. But what he also found, which, which also led us down into this path in the NIH paper, was that if an asset spun out from the University of San Diego, it had a lower probability of market approval. And we also saw that those were overwhelmingly recipients of NIH funding when we did some more looking into this, which led us to the rather uncomfortable hypothesis and thesis that perhaps NIH funding was maybe an indicator of potential failure. And it's lightly statistically significant in our deck. It's not 0.05, but it's 0.1. But we found a similar relationship to that. Can you describe how, yeah. how, how we ran yeah. that? I think you actually just described it pretty well. I mean, from a statistical standpoint, we, we put in uh, private funding and public funding as part of a model that's trying to explain the likelihood of FDA approval. And, um, and as you pointed out, this earlier work that had been done uh, did pique our interest in the idea that, gee, th this is a sort of strange. Why are these spinouts in from UCSD not being very successful? And the fact that this author had sort of noted this conundrum that it seems like those that had higher amounts of uh, public funding, of NIH funding, seem to have fare much less uh, in terms of uh, being ultimately successful. And, and this is where, and I kind of mentioned this earlier on, you know, where the support that NIH gives is somewhat kind of broad brush, right? As, as Joe says that it's really for foundational basic research. And it could be that these scientists working in labs are working on things that are, you know, uh, advantageous for them. <laughs> so they they work in their area. They get this money. Um, the, the university gets overhead. Everybody's happy, right? But nobody's really asking whether or not this thing could 
produce a viable drug that might be able to get uh, FDA approval. But isn't that then the role of the private sector? That's sort of what the private sector should be doing. I think Joe could speak to this better than I could in terms of exactly what goes on at that level of, of NIH funding for the very basic research. I don't know. I'll, I'll let Joe speak to that. Remember, bureaucrats are people. Right. No, really? <laughs> yes. This, uh, you know, there's there's a whole theory, right? Gordon Tullock and all these people about basically the government as being, a, you know, the self-interest of individuals working within the government. So I don't know how they make those decisions. Joe, do you want to comment on how uh, how NIH chooses that kind of thing? Well, there's a lot to say on this. So <laughs> let me just... We got plenty of tape. Try, so. Let me try, try to be uh, somewhat brief. It is absolutely true that the National Institutes of Health has master plans. They come up with plans every uh, five years or so, uh, and they lay out... That's interesting. A five-year plan. Never heard of that. Where they they lay out where are the big needs, these areas where we're desperately needing help. We're desperately needing uh, more targets and and more opportunities for drug th- therapies and, and what have you. At the same time, many, many researchers that are dependent on NIH uh, money to their university to fund their labs to do basic research. I know many, many scientists, good friends, who are in those uh, academic labs refuse to be involved in anything that is going to turn into a, a medicine, if, if for lack of a better term. They don't want to be part of a process to take their research and, and to make medicines. They want to do the basic. They see it as more pure. That's wonderful. I, that is not a criticism. That is absolutely crystal clear that that is what makes the NIH great, in my humble opinion. I think that that investment is massively important. At the same time, we have efforts. Um, NCATS was the first one. Dwayne, you know I've been very critical of NCATS uh, over time. I don't think it did what it was intended to do. I think our wonderful conversations with Chris Austin, former head of NCATS, bore that out. I think he was you know, really crystal clear about his feelings about that. Now, as Harry pointed out, we have ARPA-H, healthcare for basically healthcare uh, modeled after DARPA for healthcare, that is ARPA-H. The proof will be, you know, down the road. We'll see how it goes. We'll see if it is capable of developing new therapies. But at the end of the day, they are going to have to partner with industry to take those leads, to take the things that they've tested in animals and they begin to you know, think about human testing, they're going to be collaborating with the biopharmaceutical industry. Yeah. It's, as, it's as simple as that. They're going to have to. Right. Because according to our data, if they don't, it dies. It That's right. It will not come to market. That's right. Also, I think the, the cancer moonshot is a wonderful um, example of government... In this case, the administration trying to jumpstart oncological research because of the huge medical need. Now, faster cures, American Cancer Society, you you name it. Uh, there are multiple organizations, especially in this town, Washington, 
that are doing the same thing. The investments are going to be critical because we find that cancer is not a single disease in different tissues. It, it, it is a very complex mess of different genetic defects that, and environmental defects and all these that lead to these, these cancers. And we need to continue to invest to bring new therapies to, uh, to the marketplace. Going back to our research that we just published, the private sector carries the water. They take a discovery that has market potential and has the therapeutic potential. They pick it up and run with it. If we look at some of the, shall we say, proposals coming out of the U.S. Congress that are involving intellectual property, I'm thinking specifically now of Senator Elizabeth Warren and some of the proposals she's been making regarding marching rights. And we've talked a bit about marching rights on our podcast before, but I think it's important to bring this up now in the context of our NIH study. Marching rights are essentially a provision in the NIH guidelines in the law under Bayh-Dole, which allows for the transfer of NIH intellectual property to be commercialized by an outside entity. Marching rights were put in place, and the idea was you can take that patent, and if it's not being exploited, the government can bring it back. At least that's sort of how the law reads. Now, Senator Warren and others of her colleagues are interested in saying, well, we don't like the price of these drugs that have a marching component, so we want to take them back. A couple things. First off, if we, according to our research, we'll be releasing at the end of the month, just a spoiler alert for everyone, we have a study coming out, and we're going to see between 10 and 15% of drugs only. So of the 363 we've looked at, we're anticipating maybe 40 or 50 will have some marching. So the vast majority of drugs don't have a marching component. Those that do, those 10, 15%, what would happen, Joe, in the context of the NIH, if this starts to occur, if the government start, I mean, who knows now? All bets are off, you know, game on mm-hmm. with the, what we just seen with the, with the IRA, who knows where, where this, right. this ends up here in the next two years. The camel's nose is under the tent, is under the tent and it is <laughs> struggling to get the entire well, body. I think we got a couple humps in there already <laughs> yeah, at this yeah. point. You it's, know? it's not looking good as far as that's concerned. So, just we have to go back to the idea of march in first it's back to 1980 senators by march by and robert dole. and robert dole came up with this brilliant plan and and no one can look at by dole is anything but a fantastic way a very productive way of bringing intellectual property forward making it available to industry so that the investments that are being made at the NIH or the investments that have been made at the NIH are actually come to fruition. There's something that comes from it rather than just sitting in a library (laughs) in shelves someplace. So that was the genesis of this. They were very wise in writing that law back in 1980. And they had this provision to make sure that if someone took a NIH-driven patent and decided to sit on it, to not develop it as it was intended, then the government would have the right to come in and, and take it back. That is eminently fair. I, I can't even, you know, you just cannot take that intellectual property and not. You did some digging on some Baidol, yeah. and you, come, you found a couple examples that, hey, that, that makes sense. There was one at the University of Wisconsin. I think the best example, been written about for a couple decades now, the government wanted the stem cell technologies, the human embryonic stem cell technologies, to be widely distributed. 
There was no benefit for giving one entity, maybe one company, all the rights to do this work with these incredibly powerful tools. The Wisconsin Alumni Research Foundation was, well, very much part of this. And I think nobody argues that that wasn't a good idea. But the march in provision within Baidol is designed to prevent companies who are licensing technology to not bring it to fruition. It has no place. There is no place in this law. It made no, it makes no sense. It is not in the spirit of this provision to use margin as a way to price control. So you don't like prices. You can't use, well, they, Senator Warren and, and others do believe that you, you, you can use it, but it's an, a completely inappropriate use of that provision. And what will it do? Well, they have not been successful with March in, the government hasn't, or the activists that are looking to exercise this right has not been successful to date. But if it happens, the chilling effect is enormous. Again, it's a chipping away. We're right. seeing a chipping away of intellectual property rights throughout the world. This is just yet another crystal clear example of government overreach, inadvertently, unwittingly perhaps, destroying intellectual property rights. And it's something we should all be very, very concerned about because the camel's nose is under the tent and it's just going to continue to push its way through. Harry, you used to work for the U.S. Department of Labor. You were involved in government for a while. Do you ever remember a time where IP was under this sort of assault in the United States? I mean, you alluded to it earlier, but... No, in fact, when I worked for the government, uh, I was uh, partly responsible for uh, helping to produce a report to Congress on U.S. competitiveness. And nowhere in that report was anything about intellectual property, but no one was worrying about it at the time. Yeah. So I, I think it was always just a given, and it's really only in the last 20-some years or so that, you know, the whole bait and switch, as I like to call it, uh, <clears throat> that, you know, yeah, look, we got all this intellectual property, we got patent protection, you can have exclusivity, go out there, you innovate, do all that kind of stuff. Oh, oh you, get, you found the gold mine. All right, well, now we're going to take it over. <laughs> uh, I, and, you know, it's just not going to work. And I think uh, maybe something to presage uh, another comment that we could talk about here that was uh, showed up in our recent research, and that is uh, not done surprisingly, I suppose, that, you know, there's a, an enormous increase in the amount of activity taking place outside of the United States, and it's not in Europe. Yeah, it's in China. Uh, and with China, and uh, as, uh, as the, 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 the data is a little thin still right now, as to try to understand exactly what's going on over there, but uh, it looks like a lot of enormous capability is being built up. The Chinese government could, of course, just usurp all of it, but they have their own set of problems. And again, comes back to the whole idea of a system of incentives or lack of incentives and what they actually would be able to create. But if there's the idea that um, you know, the returns of your uh, sweat are not going to be appropriable, then you're going to go find someplace else to try to uh, make that sweat, uh, turn it into money. Yeah. And obviously the situation in China is, you know, a lot of smart people, far lower costs of production. And a lot of that 
stuff that's being developed is being sold into the U.S., but um, that's traditionally where the market is. But as the market evolves in China, assuming they don't start, as the French would say, cacher dans le soup, spit in the soup of IP and start making a mess of things, there will start being an indigenous market. It's inevitable. It's just sad to see the decline that Europe has undergone. Obviously, if anyone wants to go back and look at some of our other studies, we did do a comparative analysis looking at the elasticity impacts of global biotechnology development, biopharma development based on a series of key performance indicators, intellectual property investment, biotech creation, startups, etc. And, and we found overwhelmingly that as prices in Europe have been crammed down, the assets have moved to the United States and uh, with a high statistical significance. And we're pretty accurate with the Japanese market too. So the model is pretty effective, at least with 90% accuracy. And that would lend some concerns, I think, to our friends on the Hill. Um, because that would say what's going on now is not going to end well. Joe, what do you think? Well, we hope it would have. We hope that it would have an impact. We would hope that had an impact. But I'm not so sure. I'm I'm not so sure at all because there's a cynicism about this and there's this irrational dislike, this hatred of of the industry, which I think is just destructive. It's totally destructive. Here's an industry that how many times did we talk about over the last two years of the pandemic, how critical vaccines were. They're not without issues, that's for sure. But, you know, they saved millions of lives. That's been... if, if you're over 60 with comorbidities, you had a two-thirds risk of mortality reduction. Right. Literally, in real terms. In real terms. And we should have been, you know, it's water under the bridge. Hopefully we've learned a tremendous amount from this uh, particular scare, this pandemic Hopefully, we'll know next time to do the right things by isolating those who really need to be isolated, um, vaccinate those who really need to be vaccinated, and not close the country down, close the economy down. We've only begun to understand what the impacts are on mental health, on heart disease, on cancer, etc. We're going to be seeing that roll out in the future. Saying all this because... This biopharmaceutical industry is such a crucial part of increasing our quality of life, better health, better outcomes. And to vilify it and those who are trying to do this really important work is deeply troubling and cynical. And I'm afraid that we need to turn it around. Otherwise, we're going to see a lot less innovation. And picking up on that, if we look at the decision that took place June 17th while we were at bio presenting on the accelerated approval, the world trade organization, which we've been tracking since 2017 and we're very concerned about finally got their way and executed a compulsory license under the trips regulations for parts of the MRNA vaccine. This goes back to our conversation, Harry, about China and China growth. Essentially, We know from our NIH research that it's the private sector that's driving this. We know the value of intellectual property that's key and things that are created even under the NIH, which is a minority of the usable patents that come to market. But the fact is it's an important part of our investment and research ecosystem. Those are key. They're under attack now through marching rights and all sorts of things. And now we have the WTO basically looking at mRNA and saying, okay, we want that, even though... We know that in Sweden, for example, I was at the distributor, European distributor conference for the pharmaceutical industry in Berlin a week before bio. 
Sweden was throwing away 50 million doses and they couldn't give the damn things away because no one wanted them. Why are we doing this and what will be the impact? If we start using large multinational, multilateral organizations to break IP, Harry, where, where does this end up? You know, we've been looking at the role of government funding in a particular set of drugs in a fairly recent time period. But I'm sort of curious, if you were to go back 100 years, would this zero or potential negative role of of, uh, government funding hold? I guess what I'm really saying is I don't think the government funded a lot of this research 150 years ago. No, absolutely not. (laughs) Okay. So uh, so how, how did we discover medicines back then? You know, isn't uh, wouldn't universities be looking for the private sector to fund basic research or was it used to do, it did it in-house, right? So maybe we've just had a kind of substitute of, of who's funding basic research. Uh, well, the government's out there. They can use taxpayer money. Well, we'll let them fund that basic research. That, that's really risky stuff. I think there's been a shift how the funding has come. And who does the funding and then who has a say in it? Why do we somehow think that it's only the government funding that could create all of the uh, discoveries that we've had? I, I think this is the assumption that people are making, that without the government funding, we wouldn't have anything. I remember when I was teaching in Europe, my first class of my economics course to MBAs was I would sort of throw out a hypothetical. Hey, uh, uh, the wind came and it knocked over the tree in front of your house and it's crossing the road. What do you do? How do you get that fixed? And in Europe, 99.9% of all the people immediately responded, that's the government's responsibility. They have to come and clean up the tree. That's the mindset. Whereas, you know, traditionally in this country, you'd, well, I have to call a tree service or I get my chainsaw out and I'd start cutting it up. Well, in in D.C., Uh, you'd sue the tree. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. All right. I'll just stop right there. But these are big philosophical questions that are coming to the where, as like Joe says, the rubber starting to meet the road on this kind of stuff. And, you know, we're we're rightly, I believe, questioning the enormous impact that uh, additional government fiddling within the biotech, biopharmaceutical ecosystem is going to potentially cause much more harm than it could create benefit. Well, but you make a really good point, Harry. And again, even from our own research, we know that at minimum 85% of all this, all the discoveries that came out of the 363 approved drugs, 85% were private sector inventions. You know, right. uh, and, and the, the United States. Of the 250 that originated in the United States, more than half came from small U.S. biotechs. I mean, which right, in itself right, is a right. crazy number. I mean, it's just such a huge change from where this was 10, 15 years ago. So, Joe, getting back to the World Trade Organization and mRNA. I mean, mRNA, you know, Pfizer, obviously, with their partnership in BioNTech, this was originally... Uh, an oncology vector, a cancer vector. They were looking at delivering RNA directly into cancers. Well, and other things, yeah, other, other applications. Um, so what happens now with the, with the World Trade Organization basically saying, we're going to start opening this up? Where does this go? Basically, the free release of, of uh, the mRNA technology uh, that can be put to use in other places by government, by academia, by industry. 
to use however they want. Now, I mean, it's very difficult. The manufacture of mRNA is, is not something that you know, any old bio organization can do, uh, but certainly the capacities are there and the willingness to invest throughout Asia. And we heard at bio, of course, the, throughout the Middle East, they're making huge investments and it opens it up at a time when the technology should be respected, the intellectual property should have been uh, respected. And again, they're throwing this out there while we're also destroying, disposing of millions or billions, probably billions of doses, because they don't last forever. Like any medicine, they don't last forever. It's just wrong-headed from the beginning. Pfizer, Moderna, J&J worked overtime, <laughs> much well, more Sanof- than overtime. Sanofi, Sanofi too. too. I mean, just worked so hard. Once they had the approved under the emergency use authorization, they just scaled up and they were producing billions of doses and there was no need to open this up. There's no need to build new factories. Uh, so why are they the doing world. it? So what's, why are they doing it? Is it just, we want to get the industry? Is this what it is? Some, unfortunately, I think probably feel that way. But there was a feeling that they needed to jumpstart. They needed to, to get more of these doses out there more quickly. And the fact is that to get from existing factory biomanufacturing facility or to start from scratch, it takes years to get everything validated, everything built and validated and, and so that you know what you're producing is, is safe, effective, have, a, have a, a useful shelf life. There was no way that you would get the numbers of vaccine doses by giving it away and building new factories and um, building new output. The investment uh, was being made by companies like Pfizer and J&J. That's what's so wrong about this. And now, who knows what happens? I mean, I, we, we, we can't predict how bad this is, how bad this is going to be for innovation. I think it's going to be really bad. It, but sets, I, it sets a terrible precedent. And, well, and it sets a, it's a horrible precedent. And again, it's just another one of these insults to intellectual property rights, specifically to the industry. Yeah. Not to... Silicon Valley, not to Disney. Um, you know, it's just... <laughs> yeah, DeSantos has been doing that. So. Yes. <laughs> no, but it, it's just targeted. It's so wrong. It's wrong-headed. Harry? Yeah, I mean, in, unless you're, you know, unless you're an options trader and doing <laughs> butterfly spreads, you, you don't like the uncertainty that gets in, exactly. introduced with these kind of policy changes. All of a sudden something that you really minimized as a black swan event suddenly now is filled up your lake you, with you got swans. A, you got a flock of black swans running around here. You got a flock of, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, so I, I think, you know, um, business in particular, nobody likes uncertainty. And that, that to me is a lot of what this is, that it, yes. it just introduces a whole lot of uncertainty into the whole calculus that anybody would make in trying to look into the future and say, should I undertake this investment? Should I do this? Should I do that? Um, and you're just, you're just uh, 
making it more likely that people will not undertake those investments because of this increased uncertainty. And that's ultimately where we see lower investment and, and a decline in uh, potentially discoveries and new drugs and, and, you know, on down the chain. Well, I'd like to thank my two grumpy old men for being here. We could probably, or, or we could probably keep grousing and complaining for the next several hours. We probably will. Um, but again, thank you, uh, Harry and Joe. Always a pleasure. Again, our publication just yeah. re- just released in Therapeutic Innovation and Regulatory Science. It's called "The Relative Contributions of NIH and Private Sector Funding to the Approval of New Biopharmaceuticals." It's an analysis of twenty close to twenty four thousand NIH grants from the year two thousand and eight thousand associated patents. Um, please download it. It's open access. You can have it and circulate it amongst your friends and debate it. And if you disagree with us, please, by all means, send us a note. We'd happy to have you on the podcast. And we right. And, and as a note, de bene, I will add in there that unfortunately during publication, there were some mistakes that crept into the main paper. So if you do download it, make sure you also get the corrections paper that is a companion to it so that you're not fooled uh, yeah. <laughs> by things. That not misled. Yeah. Yeah, not misled. Not misled. Say. Not misled. So, Harry, always a pleasure to see you. I'm glad to see you okay. recovering. Thank you. Joe, always a pleasure, my friend. Dwayne, thank you. Harry, uh, get better fast. Absolutely. And thanks, yeah. everyone. And thanks, every- and thanks, everyone out there. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. The executive producer of the Vital Health Podcast is Dwayne Schultes. Our editor is Jonathan Ballin. Our project manager is Gwen O'Laughlin. This Vital Health Podcast is a production of Vital Transformation, LLC. Copyright 2022.